After I wrote last week's sermon, I realized that I had assumed something that I probably should not assume. Romans 12 to 15 is all about the transformed life and the transformed church. The agent of this transformation is the Holy Spirit, and his instrument of transformation is the Word of God. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to give us the mind of God that we may know the will of God and so live a life of worship to God. A life that befits the mercies of God which He has freely bestowed upon us in Christ. When, when such a transformation is multiplied in the lives of many believers, it cannot help but transform the church. Therefore, all of Romans 12 and beyond, Romans 13, 14, and 15, is a call for the church to pursue, to press into that transformation wrought through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. But, as I said, all of this assumes that we actually have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And that is not a good assumption to make, no matter the individual, no matter the church. Paul did not assume that every single member of the Roman church had the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the middle of Romans chapter 8, which is all about living by the Spirit, Paul writes this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, Paul considered it possible, perhaps even likely, that there were some within the Roman congregation hearing his letter in whom the Spirit of God did not dwell, who did not have the Spirit of Christ and therefore did not belong to to Christ. These were counterfeit Christians, dead disciples, fake followers. Notice that for Paul, having the Spirit, that is experiencing the regenerating, sanctifying, transforming power of the Spirit in one's life, is of the essence of New Testament Christianity. To have the Spirit is to be a Christian. To not have the Spirit is to be dead in trespasses and sins outside of Christ and under God's wrath and judgment, regardless of one's external attachment to or membership in the church. There's a story in Acts chapter 19 that I think can help us here. Luke records, beginning in verse 1, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. 
On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, clearly, there are some extraordinary factors at play in this passage. You remember from our study of the charismatic church from verses 3 through 8 that the book of Acts represents an extraordinary season of ministry during which the Spirit worked in the church in extraordinary ways, ways which may not be normative for the church in an ordinary season of ministry in which the Spirit works in more ordinary ways. For instance, it is not normative for the Holy Spirit to be bestowed through the laying on of hands. This seems to have been a special function of the apostolic office during the apostolic age. We see it again, for instance, in Acts chapter 8. Rather, the normative experience for the church throughout this age is that one receives the Holy Spirit during conversion when a person believes. We see that, for instance, in Galatians 3.2 and Ephesians 1.13 and other places. It's not normative for the reception of the Holy Spirit to be accompanied by the speaking in tongues and prophecy. Not only is such a requirement never mentioned in Scripture, in other words, there's no verse of the Bible which says all who receive the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues and prophesy, but Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that all who are within the body of Christ receive the Spirit, and yet not all possess the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. Finally, the historical situation of these 12 men is not normative. These men appear to have been Old Covenant Jews who lived in that age of overlap when the New Covenant was dawning upon the Old Covenant age. All they knew was the Old Covenant promise of a Messiah who was to come. They did not know of the new covenant Messiah who had already come. In other words, they were old covenant Jews who needed to be brought over into a new covenant faith. Now, there's a lot of debate over just who these 12 men were and how we should understand Luke's referring to them as disciples in verse 1. But at least three points seem clear to me and are relevant to our discussion this morning. First, their knowledge of the gospel was deficient. They'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. They probably had never heard of Jesus. They were worshipers of God, as I said, probably Old Covenant Jews and disciples of John the Baptist, but they were not New Covenant Christians, that they were not baptized into Christ demonstrates that their faith was not in Christ. They were evidently still looking for the Messiah to come rather than trusting in the Messiah who had come, had died, and had risen again. Secondly, their experience of the gospel was defective because their faith was not true faith, 
They had not received the Holy Spirit when they had believed. Their repentance was preparatory, but devoid of new covenant power. Whatever they were, however we are to understand them, they were not Christians in the full new covenant sense. Finally, Paul expected them to be able to answer as to whether or not they had received the Holy Spirit. In other words, for Paul, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit was a discernible experience. How? By speaking in tongues and prophecy? No. That was the immediate activity of the Spirit in this particular extraordinary case. But nowhere does Paul indicate that that's the normal experience of every spirit and dwelt believer. Rather, throughout Paul's letters, the discernible effect of the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and therefore the irrefutable proof that one has received the Spirit, is the presence of the Holy Spirit's fruit. Even so, I would say, there are many people in churches today whose knowledge of the gospel is deficient, whose experience of the gospel is defective, and who have no discernible evidence of the Holy Spirit's transformative power. And my prayer is that you would not be among them, that you would know the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Beloved, you must be able to answer the question that Paul posed to these 12 men. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And the only sure way to answer that question with confidence is on the evidence of the fruit the evidence of a transformed and transforming life. So let me give you five diagnostic questions to ask yourself in order to discern whether you received the Holy Spirit when you believed. First, is my hope of salvation in Christ alone? who was delivered over for my transgressions and was raised for my justification? Is my faith built entirely upon the grace of God and the saving work of Christ rather than my own work? Can I say from the depths of my soul, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Is that the cry of my heart? Second, is my knowledge of God growing? Do I know and understand his word better now than I did when I first believed? Because if the spirit of God works through the word of God to renew our minds and therefore transform our lives, then it stands to reason that the spirit would cause us to grow in our understanding of his word. Third, is my affection for God increasing? 
You see, the Christian faith is not merely an intellectual faith. It's not merely a matter of the mind. It's an emotional faith that affects also our heart. So do I love and long for God's presence with an increasing intensity? Is my love for the world decreasing and my love for Christ increasing? My desire for the world waning and my desire for Christ waxing? Is this evident in my worship and my prayer? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, that if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So do I love Christ? Do I long for his return? Third, or fourth rather, is my pattern of life changing? Am I putting to death sin on the one hand and forming new habits of righteousness on the other? Is my life in all of its components, my thoughts, my words, my deeds, my affections, my relationships, are they becoming increasingly Christ-like? Am I being conformed into the image of God's beloved Son? Finally, do those who know me, especially my church, see the evidence of the Spirit at work in my life? See, the fact is, I am not the best judge of my own transformation. I'm equally prone, it seems, to either imagine fruit that isn't really there or to overlook fruit that is. These five questions are a good diagnostic of whether you received the Holy Spirit when you believed. And you must be able to answer them in the affirmative. Because if the Spirit does not dwell in you, you can't live the kind of life that Romans 12 is calling you to live. And furthermore, you will hinder the body of Christ from being the kind of church that Romans 12 is calling us to be. If you don't have the Spirit, you'll be like a gangrenous limb that needs to be amputated from the body of Christ. So what do you do if you are unsure of whether or not you've received the Spirit? Or what do you do if perhaps you're certain that you have not? Well, what does the Scripture say? It says first that you must hear the gospel and believe. Paul writes in Galatians 3.2, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? That's what we're wanting, right? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So if you want to receive the Spirit, hear the gospel with faith. Trust it. Believe it. What else does the Scripture say? It says you must confess your need of the Holy Spirit to God and ask him for the Spirit. Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So ask him, and he'll surely give the Spirit to those who cry out. 
Finally, the scriptures say you must go to Christ directly and drink from the well of his grace through faith. Jesus says in John 7, if anyone thirsts, that's what we're That's what we're after, right? We're thirsting for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in supernatural grace and love as Romans 12 is calling us to love. If anyone thirsts, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There will be this ceaseless flow of living water. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Well, we don't have to guess because John tells us immediately in the next verse. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But Jesus has now been glorified and he gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So if you are thirsty for the grace and power and the spirit of God, go to Christ and ask him. Drink of his grace. Give yourself to him and ask him to flood your heart with the rivers of living water that flow from the spirit of God. Well, with that explanation before us, as well as last week's explanation on how to walk by the Spirit and so to fulfill the righteousness of the law, how to aptat, acknowledge, pray, trust, act, and thank. Let's now proceed on in Romans chapter 12, where Paul is describing the fruit of the spiritual church. That is, the characteristics that the transformed church filled with transformed people will possess. First, we saw last week that the first fruit of the spiritual church is love, which only makes sense because Paul repeatedly says in his letters that love is the fulfillment of the law. It is It is the summary, the sum total of what God requires of his people. It's the new command which Jesus gave to his new covenant church. Love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13.10, Galatians 5.14. Love is the greatest of the spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, the greatest of these is love. And love is the first fruit of the Spirit, which Paul lists in his inventory of spiritual fruits in Galatians 5.22-23. So it ought not surprise us that Paul begins this long list of commands enumerating what a transformed spiritual church does with these words, let love be genuine. What follows then in the rest of verses 9 and 10 is a description of genuine spirit-wrought love. Paul writes, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. In fact, everything that follows in Romans 12 through 15 could be understood as a description of genuine love in action. 
but especially these three characteristics in verses 9 and 10. We saw last week that genuine love is first a righteous love. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. It is a love that hates the evil that would destroy my brother and loves the good that would lead him to life eternal. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Secondly, we saw that genuine love is an affectionate love. Love one another with brotherly kindness. It is a familiar, felt affection for all within the body of Christ, even, perhaps especially, those who we would not normally or naturally love. And then third, genuine love is a humble love. Outdo one another in showing honor. The church is not a place where people jockey for position. Rather, it's one where we serve one another in humility, considering one another as more important than ourselves. Well, we move now to the second fruit of the spiritual church, which may be found in verse 11 and contains a triad of commands that seem to belong together. Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. The first phrase is negative. Paul says, don't be lazy, don't be apathetic. The second is positive. Rather, be passionate, be zealous. And then the third provides the focus or the direction of our zeal and our passion and our productivity, namely in the service of the Lord. So let's take these three phases or phrases rather one at a time and see what true spiritual ministry looks like. The first phrase, do not be slothful in zeal, warns us against the kind of Christianity that coasts or meanders towards the finish line. It warns us against the kind of apathetic complacency, the the kind of laziness that is content to just sloth one's way through life. Not risking anything, not achieving anything, not good for anything. Slothful is a word that is only used two other times in the entire New Testament. And if we look at those two other occasions, it should provide some color and texture and definition for the way that Paul uses it here. The first instance is in Matthew twenty-five, twenty-six, uh, when Jesus told the parable of the talents in which a wealthy man went on a long journey. But before he departed, he called his servants and and he entrusted to each a portion of his wealth, each according to his ability. To one he gave five talents, which is an enormous amount of money, about a hundred years' wages. To a second he gave two talents, forty years' wages. And to a third, he gave one talent, about 20 years wages. So an an enormous amount of money in these um, graded degrees. The one who was given the five talents invested it, and he earned five talents more. 
Likewise, the one who was given two talents invested his treasure, and he likewise doubled his money. But the third servant merely dug a hole and hid his master's money in the ground. And when the master returned, he called his servants together in order to settle their accounts. Both the first and the second servants brought to the master their proceeds. They brought the fruit of their labors, the the dividends from their invested talents. And both heard from the master's lips these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But when the third servant who had done nothing with the talent that the master had entrusted to him, when he came and he appeared before the master, the master, he said to the master, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But the master was not pleased. And he replied, you wicked and slothful servant. There's the word. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes. So we may learn from Jesus' use of the word in this parable that slothful means something along the lines of a lazy indolence which results from loveless unbelief. Lazy indolence that results from loveless unbelief. The difference between the two good and faithful servants and the wicked and slothful servant was not merely that the good and faithful servants put their talents to work, investing them in order to seek a return for their master while the wicked and the slothful servant merely hid his talent in the hole in the ground. The difference goes far deeper than what they did with their talents, down to the very way they viewed their master and the service which he required. The good and the faithful servants invested their talents out of a love for their master and a desire to please him. The wicked and the slothful servant viewed his master as a hard man, whom you do not want to cross, and whom you cannot love. Better not to take risks with such a man. In Jesus' view, the slothful, the wicked, worthless servant has no part in his everlasting kingdom because he has no faith in nor love for the everlasting king. In light of that parable, I think then it's only right for us to pause and to ask, so what are we doing with the talents which the master has given to us? What will we have to show the master when he returns? Maybe more to the point, 
how do we view the master as a loving and faithful and glorious king whom we want nothing more than to please him at his coming or as a hard man whom we do not want to cross. Laziness is not a virtue that Jesus will reward on the last day. In fact, laziness makes you liable to everlasting judgment in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second place where the word slothful occurs in the New Testament is in Philippians 3.1, where the ESV interestingly translates it as trouble. Finally, my brothers, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things is no trouble to me. Same word. It's no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Paul's point is that writing this reminder that is Philippians to the Philippian church, it's not to him a a grievous, tedious, troublesome chore. Rather, he's glad to do it for their spiritual welfare. Therefore, to be slothful in this view is to see labor or work or service as a grievous, troublesome, irksome task, and therefore to be avoided at all costs. The opposite is to view labor or service as a joy and an opportunity to serve Christ and to serve others for Christ's sake, just like Paul viewed his responsibility and opportunity to write the letter to the Philippians to the church. It's for their spiritual good. Therefore, I'm not feeling slothful about this responsibility. I'm not viewing it as troublesome. Rather, it is my joy to write to them for their good and for Christ's glory. Well, the other important word in that first phrase is the word zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Zeal is perhaps not the best translation. And let me tell you why. Zeal tends to evoke the picture of Jesus in the temple, for instance, when he fashions a whip out of cords and he's, and he's thrashing the money changers and driving them from the temple. And you remember that in John 2.17, um, John says that Jesus did this because uh, it says in the scriptures, zeal for your house will consume me. That's, that's the way we tend to hear the word zeal. It suggests the image of a passionate, fiery rage. But the zeal of John 2 is not the same word used here in Romans 12, 11. The word here would probably better be translated diligence or earnestness. The idea of passion actually comes in in the next phrase. What is in view in the first phrase is not so much passion as perseverance and persistence in love. It's the same idea found in Galatians 6, 9, where Paul says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. Don't grow weary 
in loving the body. Don't grow weary in serving the brothers. Listen, ministry is hard. It's hard because it is so often long-term. You're never really done with ministry. Therefore, the Christian life is not for the lazy. It's for the diligent. So if I could put one word on this first phrase, it would be this. Paul's telling us, be productive. Have something to show the master when he returns. The second phrase, be fervent in spirit, adds another component to spirit-wrought ministry. And it's just as important as the first component. You see, if all Paul had said was, do not be slothful in zeal, one could easily get the idea that what matters most is productivity. You know, just get things done. It doesn't matter how. The ends justify the means. But that's not what Paul's after. Work, service, labor, ministry, that's not the end goal, as we'll see in a moment. So Paul adds a second phrase, be fervent in spirit. The word fervent literally means boiling over. Like a pot that you boil. If you're boiling spaghetti noodles and if you don't watch it, it'll boil over. It's the picture of of a person who is filled to the brim with, with passion. So much so that it's just pouring out in service. It's pouring out in labor. It's pouring out in ministry. The word is used only one other time in the New Testament. And that's in Acts 18.25, and it's a description that's applied to Apollos, a man whom Luke describes as something of a firebrand, passionately, boldly speaking of Christ there in the synagogue in Ephesus, a man who couldn't have kept quiet about Jesus if he'd wanted to. Fervent is a word that always touches on the emotions. It is a deep, passionate heartfelt fervor, whether for good or for evil. It's the opposite of apathy, which means unfeeling or numb or ambivalent. Fervent is a feeling word. Paul wants us to boil with passion for Christ. And out of that boiling passion, he wants us to overflow in productive ministry. And so we have two phrases that together paint a portrait of the kind of person God wants us to be. The first phrase warns against laziness. Don't be slothful in zeal. It's simply another way of saying, be productive. Work hard. Be diligent. Do something. The second phrase is a kind of corrective to the tedious, nose-to-the-grindstone, heartless labor that we might be prone to offer. Be fervent in spirit. In other words, be passionate. Be boiling. Feel something. Do something, feel something, be productive, 
be passionate. Put them together and you have a a picture of a ministry that is passionately productive. That's what God wants from his people. Our aim, in other words, is to be a kind of combination of Martha and Mary. Busy about many things and seated at the Lord's feet. All wrapped up into one. Not either or, but both and. The final phrase of verse 11 serve the Lord, adds focus and direction to our passionate productivity. You see, you don't have to be born again in order to be productive. There are lots of people who work incredibly hard and are incredibly productive and successful. You don't have to be born again to be passionate. There are lots of lost people who feel very deeply about a number of causes. Abortion rights activists, for example, are passionately productive in their campaign to maintain a woman's right to slay her unborn child upon the idol of, or the altar of convenience. Wall Street stockbrokers, for example, are passionately productive as they put in 16-hour workdays, as they sacrifice to the God of wealth. Lost people can even be passionately productive about good things, like alleviating poverty or universal literacy or health care. But their passionate productivity lacks an essential element that keeps it from being true ministry. It must be done. If it's to be true spiritual ministry, it must be done with the aim of glorifying God. That is the aim of serving the Lord. For that, you must have the Holy Spirit. You must add to your productivity and your passion a Christ-exalting purpose. And that purpose, according to Romans 12, is the cause of love. That's what Paul is calling the church to in Romans 12:11. The fruit of the spiritual church is spirit-wrought ministry, passionate productivity with a Christ-exalting purpose. Now, I want to close this morning's message by focusing in on that final phrase, serve the Lord. What does that mean? Because I fear that perhaps we have a too narrow view of what it means to serve Christ. As though Christian service referred only to the kind of ministry that is done behind a pulpit or on a mission field or within the walls of a church building or under the auspices of an officially sanctioned church program. But the spirit-indwelt Christian and the spiritual church does not distinguish between Christian service and non-Christian service. As though teaching the Bible to fifth graders in Sunday school were Christian service, but teaching fifth graders long division in a public school classroom were not. Any work performed by the power of God's 
spirit with a view to God's glory is service rendered to Christ. What we have in Romans 12, 11 is an all-encompassing view of life, applying just as much to our marriages as to our ministries. What Paul has to say in this verse applies to our jobs, to our homes, to our families, indeed to every sphere of life. For the Christian, all of life is to be conceived of as service to the Lord, and therefore all of life, our marriages, our jobs, our parenting, everything calls for passionate productivity for a Christ-exalting purpose. Now, where do I get this all-encompassing idea of Christian ministry? It comes from the Protestant Reformation. That was one of the main um, outcomes of, of the Protestant Reformation. But even before that, it comes from the apostolic worldview. It comes from Colossians chapter 3, for instance, or Ephesians 5 and 6. Beginning in verse 18, Paul addresses three different relationships. Husband-wife, parents-children, employee-employer, servants-masters. And, and these three different relationships encompass three different spheres of life. Marriage, family, work. Listen to what Paul says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Note this, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Do you see how Paul understood every one of these relationships as intimately related to our relationship to Christ? Do you see how Paul saw that in every one of these realms, we have the opportunity to serve and glorify Christ? I mentioned ago that this, this is the basis of what was known as the Protestant work ethic. Suddenly, out of the Protestant Reformation, it became clear that you didn't have to be a priest or a monk or a nun in order to please and glorify God, in order to perform Christian ministry. Moms can perform Christian ministry by, by teaching and, and, and providing for their kids, loving them, nourishing them, cuddling them, letting them know that they're loved and treasured and safe. Dads can glorify God by, by plowing in the fields, by providing food and putting it on the table, by raising their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Laborers can glorify God by rendering a full day's work and being passionate 
passionately productive in the, in the jobs that their masters have set before them. All of life for the spirit-indwelt Christian is an opportunity to serve Christ. That's what Paul's driving at here. If we take Colossians 3, in fact, and we overlay it on on that parallel passage in Ephesians 5 and 6, we find this link at every stage of Paul's argument. Wives are to submit to their husbands as unto Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers are not to discourage or to provoke their children, but rather are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, in such a way that they will learn how to trust and obey Christ. Servants or employees are to serve their masters or their employers as though they were serving Christ. Masters or employers are to treat their servants or their employees justly and fairly. Why? Because Christ is their master and judge. Every relationship we have, every responsibility arising from those relationships is ultimately under the authority of Christ, is informed by our relationship to Christ, and is addressed ultimately to the glory of of Christ. When wives serve their husbands, they are ultimately serving Christ. So wives, what does Romans 12:11 have to say about the way that you love and minister to your husband? Husbands, when you love and care for your wives, you are ultimately serving Christ. So what does Romans 12, 11 say about the way you should love and minister to your wife? When children listen to and trust and obey and honor their parents, they're actually serving Christ. So kids, what does Romans 12, 11 say about the way you should honor your parents? When parents love and teach and provide for their children, they are serving Christ. Indeed, the way that they do these things has a tremendous impact on whether their children grow to follow and love and, and trust and obey Christ. So parents, what does Romans twelve eleven say about how you should love and lead your kids? When employees work for their employers, they're serving Christ. So employees, what does Romans twelve eleven say about the kind of service you should render? Who do you think should be the hardest working, most productive, honest, trustworthy employee in the business? When employers manage their employees, they are serving Christ. So employers, what does Romans 12, 11 say about the way you ought to treat your employees? The way you ought to lead them, encourage them, guide them. How does the fact that Christ is your master and judge inform the way that you will lead your employees? In every one of these realms, marriage, family, home, work, and yes, the church, God calls us to passionate productivity for the purpose of glorifying Jesus. So do not draw some arbitrary line between Christian ministry 
and the rest of life. If you are a Christian, if you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, and the very Spirit of Christ dwells within you, then all of life is Christian ministry. All of life is an opportunity to serve Christ by serving others, to love God by loving others. And therefore, all of life, marriage, parenting, employment, relationships, friendships, everything requires the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in order to bear spiritual fruit. So if you're teaching fifth graders long division, you ought to do so in a way that is, that is different than you would if you didn't have the Spirit. In other words, you should teach long division with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Imagine what kind of teacher that would be and what kind of impact that teacher would have upon his or her students. And the same goes for every profession. Beloved, the fruit of the spiritual church is ministry. Passionately productive service for the glory of Christ in all of life. A life lived like that will not hear from the master on the last day. Cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Rather, a life lived like that, passionately productive for a Christ-exalting purpose in all of life, will hear from the Master on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Master.